Welcome to the Wild Heart Meditation Center podcast. It is our intention to continue offering these audio recordings free of charge. However, if you would like to donate to support our cause and keeping our facility open in Nashville, you can do so via the Venmo app by sending a donation to at Wild Heart Nashville, or you can find us online at our website, wildheartmeditationcenter.org, and click the Donate tab. Um, because tonight I'm going to talk about it's such a, it's been such an essential part of my own mindfulness practice, this topic of the five hindrances. The five hindrances are five commonly occurring mental states that often obstruct our clarity of mind, that lead to reactivity, and that if unnoticed sometimes cause destructive actions in our lives. Fortunately, Rachel talked about this topic this morning, so she wrote them up on the board. (laughs) But I'll use my own uh, terminology here. The five are craving, or sometimes it's referred to as sense desire, aversion, lethargy, restlessness, and doubt. Craving, aversion, lethargy, restlessness, and doubt. So hopefully already just hearing that list, these are things that we're familiar with. And I find a lot of the Buddha's teachings aren't very esoteric. They're very practical. (laughs) The Buddha was an inquirer of the mind. He's very interested in how we subjectively experience our mind. By sitting down through meditation and observing the mind, he's able to categorize or map different types of experiences. So the five hindrances are an important part of our inquiry as meditators and as people that are maybe interested in Buddhism. In the mythological story of the Buddha's enlightenment, his awakening, the Buddha came into contact with this strong demonic force called Mara. And Mara is the symbolic representation. It's kind of like a yeah, symbol or a metaphor for greed, hatred, and delusion. But instead of fighting Mara, the Buddha utilized mindfulness Meditation as a way to step back and to observe these forces of greed, hatred, and delusion in his mind. To step back and to learn how to respond skillfully, carefully, wise, in a wise way to the greed, the hatred, and delusion of his own mind. And so I'm a visual thinker. I actually quite enjoy the myths and the symbols and the stories and the Buddhist discourses. I want to read something that it's a paraphrase of a teacher named Stephen Batchelor. He wrote a little bit about Mara and the Buddha's enlightenment. He says, throughout the Buddhist discourses, Mara is depicted as a warlord mounted on an elephant commanding a legion of troops. The Buddha did not consider any power so hard to conquer as the power of Mara. 
he enumerates the armies under Mara's command as sensual desire, discontent, hunger and thirst, craving, lethargy, fear, doubt, restlessness, longing for gain and praise, honor and fame, and extolling oneself while disparaging others. The Buddha tells of how he struggled to be free from these forces in his own mind, which seemed to besiege and attack him, blur his vision, darken his understanding, and thus divert him from his goal of freedom. Only when the Buddha was able to experience the desires and fears that threatened to overwhelm him as nothing but impersonal and ephemeral conditions of the mind and the body, did they lose their power to mesmerize him. Instead of perceiving these forces and avenging himself against the army intent on his destruction, the Buddha recognized that they were only impersonal and temporary mind states that simply arose and passed through his awareness. So the Buddha is really this representation of greed, of hatred, delusion, right? In some of our more colloquial, modern-day terms, right? I'm thinking Brene Brown in my mind right now, like shame, the inner critic, the comparing mind, right? All of this, really these defenses, these psychological defenses, the automatic habit of the mind to protect, to defend, to separate, to compare, to judge, So what did the Buddha do? Did he fight Mara? Did he attack the Mara's, Mara's greed with greed or hatred with hatred or confusion with more confusion? No, he instead developed a relationship to his mind through mindfulness. He sat down and he looked right at it and he said, time and time again throughout the discourses, he said this famous phrase, I see you, Mara. I see you, Mara. Even after the Buddha's enlightenment, awakening, the Buddha continued to have a relationship with Mara. This means that to me, if there is such thing as enlightenment or awakening, I don't know if there is, that even in an awakened mind, there's still greed, there's still hatred, there's still delusion. But there is this clarity, this ability to see it, as the Buddha does and say, I see you, Mara. With being able to see these mind states, greed, of hatred, of delusion, the Buddha can learn how to respond skillfully to them. Right? I like to just think of myself when I'm caught up in reactivity or emotion, frustration, anger, fear. Some of these things we're going to talk about tonight, the hindrances. When I'm caught up in these, Right? If I don't have this ability to pause and observe and to notice the mind state, right, I'm very unlikely to skillfully nav navigate that mind state. Right? The anger is likely to come out of my mouth <laughs> right? or my middle finger or whatever form it takes. You know, The criticism, the doubt is, is going to spin in my mind. That comparing mind will just endlessly, maybe for a day or two, comparing myself to how I used to be or to where I think I should be. Or, you know, so the Buddha developed really two 
fundamental ways of relating tomorrow. One is to practice this non-reactive awareness, this ability to step back and to observe. And the second is to learn a way to creatively engage with these mind states in his mind. To learn how to overcome them, for lack of better words, really, to overcome doubt and overcome anger. Not to get rid of them, but to cooperate. Right? I like thinking of mindfulness as really, it's not about clearing the mind, it's cooperating with the mind. It's having a relationship and learning to negotiate some of the mind's territories. There's a really great teacher named Manindraji that said, if you want to understand your mind, you have to sit down and watch it. This is how we learn to develop through meditation wisdom, which is insight, being able to look inside the mind to understand its patterns, to see the ways that it gets stuck in the future, in the past, in comparing, criticizing, judging. We have to get to know these parts of our mind. So we can learn to cooperate with them so we don't have to buy the stories that they tell us. We can see through them. We can learn how to open to our emotions, to develop what's called equanimity, which is an ability to allow ourselves to be with distress without fighting or resisting it, to allow ourselves to be with joy and excitement without clinging and craving around it. Easier said than done, right? But this is why we practice the, what's called sati bhavana, which is the cultivation of mindfulness. I like the word bhavana because it is what the Buddha's term is. He didn't have a word called meditation. It's something I think like an 18th century Christian term, meditation. Or I think maybe mindfulness is. But instead he had this word sati. Sati, we translate as mindfulness. Sati patana. Actually, when translated, means to remember the ground. To remember the ground. I find that these Pali Sanskrit words are a lot more descriptive of what we're doing than these very neutered English terms. Satipatthana means to remember the ground. What is the ground that we're remembering? This ground of present experience, this awareness, this ability to step back and observe. Right now, the mind is like this, and the body is like this, and the sounds are like this. And it's a cultivation, so it's like a training of, of the mind. So this is the way that I want to talk about the hindrances, is the same two ways that the Buddha worked with his mind. I think we want to work with the hindrances. The first is what I might refer to as non-reactive awareness, which is a little bit misleading. Because non-reactive awareness doesn't mean that you don't have a reactivity in your mind and body. It means that you're practicing, you're cultivating a way of being non-reactive to the reactivity. Does that make sense? So when we notice the mind's restless during meditation and obsessing and doing all of these backflips, we just say, okay, mind, I see you, no big deal. Do your thing. You know, this ability to step back and to observe that mental state, this non-reactive awareness. 
Pema Chodron has a really great quote about the importance of non-reactive awareness and even compassionate awareness. Like I said during the meditation instructions tonight, to treat our mind like a little kid. And I like, like I said, I'm a visual person. So thinking of my mind as some archetype of a little kid helps me. <laughs> so she has a way of, of talking about this important aspect of non-reactive awareness. She says, it is only when we begin to relax with ourselves that meditation becomes a transformative process. Only when we relate with ourselves without moralizing, without harshness, without deception, can we let go of harmful patterns. Without compassionate awareness, letting go of old habits can become abusive. And she says this is an important point. Have you ever tried to fight your mind during meditation? Have you ever just wished it would shut up or wished it would focus on the breath for at least five seconds? I do all the time. <laughs> when I fight my mind, when I meet my mind's restlessness with aggression, with, she says, moralizing, harshness, right? When I meet my mind in this way, when I meet it with a harsh awareness, my mind is more reactive. But when I, instead I practice compassionate awareness, it means that I open up to the possibility of if I just sit back and observe and I let my mind do its thing, then I can maybe help soften that restlessness, soften that reactivity. And then once the mind softens a little bit, I can say, hey, what about the breath? You want to check that out for a second? All right, it's right there. Remember the ground, touching the ground, right? It's like trying to get a kid out of a candy shop. The mind's thinking about the future. It's all hopped up on <laughs> next week, right? And we're like, sorry, got to go. Back to the breath. <coughs> Freaking out, right? Okay, five more minutes. You can get one thing. <laughs> Then we got to go. And then the mind may still lash out a little bit, but then that we've got to be the strong parent sometimes and say, all right, attention, that's enough. Not right now. That's enough planning. You know, because if we don't meet our mind with a kind awareness, we reinforce the message that we're wrong for even experiencing those mind states in the first place. That it's my restlessness, it's my aversion, my mind. I take my mind personally. So that may be new to some folks if you're just being introduced to this practice. What does it mean? What's the difference between your mind and you? Right? Well, if you were your mind, you could tell your mind to stop thinking for 30 minutes and it would listen to you. Just like I can't stop my ears from hearing that sound right now, I could plug my ears but then I just hear my breath and hear the humming noise. I can't stop my mind from thinking. The mind, we believe the mind arises from this organ we call the brain. We don't really know. But let's say the brain is an organ that produces mind. The ears are organs that produce sound. The nose is an organ that produces smell. You can't stop the mind. 
We have to relate to it. We have to learn to see the mind as not who we are, but what we can observe, what we can relate to, and what we can learn to cooperate with. We can learn to train our attention to not get so preoccupied and caught up in the stories of the mind. We can actually tell the mind a moment at a time, not right now, and bring the attention back to the breath. And for that moment, when I'm really connected to the in-breath, and then really connected to the out-breath, in that moment, the attention gets a break from the mental proliferation, from the discursive thinking, from the perpetual wandering, as the Buddha calls it, of the mind. So mindfulness is fundamentally, it's a science of attention training. Noticing where the attention is without judgment. Okay, it's in a thought, no big deal. And training the attention. Being the parent to the attention. Okay, attention, come back. Noticing when the attention's caught up in a destructive mind state. And being able to say, hey, mind, not right now. Let's not think about the X right now. Let's not plan the argument tomorrow. So we want to start to look at these mind states, these hindrances I'm about to talk to as our practice, not as what's getting in the way of our practice. When cravings in the mind, it's an opportunity to to work with it. There is the work, the work, the Dharma, the Buddha calls his teaching the Dharma. The Dharma, when translated, just means the way things are. And not in a metaphysical, like special sense, not like a magical teaching but like literally the way things are. So what we're waking up to is this dharma, the way things are. And and when cravings in the mind, cravings in the mind, we want to wake up to that. We want to see it. We want to notice it. Not view the craving as what's getting in the way of my meditation. If my mind was not restless, then I would meditate. Right? If my mind wasn't so full of doubt, then I could meditate. But instead, these are really opportunities, not obstacles. The hindrances are opportunities. So once again, non-reactive awareness doesn't mean that we have a mind that doesn't have any reactivity in it. It means that we're practicing abstaining from reacting to the reactions, from feeding the reactivity, softening the body, observing the mental state, breathing, These are the first three steps of Tara Brock popularized a teaching that a lady named Michelle McDonald uh, uh, came up with, which is a practice called RAIN. And the first three steps are really this non-reactive awareness of recognizing when the mind state is present, allowing, which means softening into the body and making space for the mind state. And then once you recognize and once you allow recognizing there's restlessness in the mind, allowing ourselves to soften and relax around the restlessness, then we investigate. Then we start to see, oh, what is the cause of this restlessness? We start to maybe see where it comes from. The second way the Buddha talks about working with the hindrances is this non-reactive awareness and then this way of skillfully engaging with and overcoming the hindrance. 
once we enter into a relationship with the restlessness and we recognize it, we allow, we understand it or see what it is, then we can start to work at how do we adjust, make adjustments in our behavior, in our meditation practice, in our daily life. How do we make adjustments to soothe the restlessness, to calm the restlessness, to overcome it? So this is the way I want to talk about the hindrances tonight in these kind of two ways. is one of non-reactive awareness. How do we investigate? Like, what are these hindrances? So I'm about to go through them. What are they? And then how do we skillfully engage or creatively engage with them to work with them a little bit? The first hindrance is what the Buddha refers to as sensual desire. Or I even like the word craving. Sometimes it's referred to as tanha and upadana, which is craving and clinging. So this is the automatic impulse or habit of the mind to look for its happiness in temporary experiences of pleasure, temporary experiences of achievement, status, praise, recognition, attention. So it's the habit of the mind. You may even see in your meditation the mind's sense of wanting. It's kind of anticipating, wanting. In and of itself, pleasure and comfort are not a problem. The Buddha is not declaring a war on feeling pleasure or feeling comfort, but it's rather... It's in the relationship to the pleasure and the comfort, this seeking. Right? You'll notice this in the mind. It's, again, it's this impulse. It's this almost habit of mind to seek for pleasure and comfort, to long for it, to cling to it. You ever notice when you have a meditation that's re- really calming and relaxing, you're like, oh, I'm totally meditating right now. This is what meditation is. It's feeling calm and present and not having many thoughts. There's craving in the mind. There's clinging, actually, in the mind. That mind that says, this is it. I've arrived. You know, and then your leg falls asleep and you're like, fuck. I was almost there. Right? This is really what we're looking for is this subtle level. This is the third foundation of mindfulness where we're talking about the hindrances. Mindfulness of that craving and clinging. The mind that thinks it needs to have things a certain way to be happy. And that there's some point where we're finally going to get all the things to line up just right. Whether it's in our meditation or our life. So craving can be a sense of just watching through your, through your mindfulness practice. Wanting, anticipating, a sense of lacking or longing for. Or it can even be like preoccupation, like you're kind of obsessing about uh, you know, promotion or a date you're going to go on or a movie you're going to watch later. It's the mind's just kind of obsessing, wanting. So again, what do we do with that? Well, one of the, the first step is to ha- practice a non-reactive awareness of it. So they call this, in, in meditation practice, sometimes they call this note, noting. Noting simply means literally using like a silent mental label in your mind to just note wanting. No big deal, just wanting, just noticing it's in the mind. 
This is incredibly powerful. Probably one of the simplest, but most potent aspects of mindfulness is just the simple ability to step back and observe. Right now in the mind there's wanting, there's anticipation. Because when there's that awareness it helps us to create a space. And to be able to observe that mind state is not being caught up in it, but being stepped back and aware of it. Does that make sense? So it's this shift really. Instead of getting enmeshed in the story of my boss and my job and what I want and I'm going to watch Game of Thrones later and what am I going to eat later, we're able to just notice, oh shit, wanting. And in that moment, there's that ability to step back and just observe it as the, as the Buddha did, as Mara, observing it as this kind of... Because if I was at home and not with you guys, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit, I may just get up off my meditation cushion and go dig into the ice cream or the episode, right? How much time throughout our day are we endlessly following around our automatic impulses? A lot. Not our fault, but our responsibility. That's what Buddha's saying. Not your fault your responsibility. This is craving. Ways to work with it in meditation. The Buddha's instruction is, like I said at the beginning, when you meditate, at the beginning of your meditation session, he said to practice, he actually says going to a secluded place. Right? He says to go away from the village into a secluded place. He said like a hut or beneath a tree, <laughs> right? This is our metaphorical hut and tree here in this room. <laughs> Not very secluded, right? But it's intentional. So that's actually what he's focusing on. Be intentional about your, your meditation practice. Set up a space in, your, in place in your house that all you do there is meditate. Set up a physical place that you can go to. And then when you sit your butt down on that place, you can set the intention, as he says, to set aside our desire and discontent for the world. For these next 15, 20 minutes, I'm not planning my week. I'm not remembering all the things I forgot to do or getting lost in the really cool song idea or project that I'm coming up with. When my mind wants to grasp onto those things, I just notice wanting, I notice clinging, and I tell my mind, not right now. Another way to work with craving is to, to ride what I call the crave wave, which is there's this impulse. When you notice craving, you'll notice actually the body has a contracted feeling to it or a rush. So the wanting lives in the somatic experience of feeling. And so we can learn to actually, through meditation, sit with these impulses, to relax around them and to ride the crave wave, to notice that a craving has a beginning, a middle, and an end. I think it was you that said that, you're, you're, uh, if you don't mind me outing you, you're, you and your therapist were talking about that. That's very powerful, the beginning, middle, end. Craving is not something we have to act on. If we stay for it long enough, it will pass. And that's very powerful because then we build confidence. I don't have to be the servant of my mind. I can be, as the Zen quote says, the master of my mind. Not by controlling my mind, but not by getting lost in its impulses. 
So another hindrance is aversion. Aversion. Well, let me say just real quick another thing about craving, another way to work with it. The Buddha also encourages the practice of looking at how our behavior, what we do, what we consume, how we act, what activities we participate in our environment, how they also condition and affect our mind. So like someone like myself, I'm in recovery from drug and alcohol addiction. And the problem with drug and alcohol addiction is not that drugs and alcohol are immoral. At least to me, I don't like to view things as moral or immoral in that sense. But that when acted upon, for me, create this endless cycle. Right? For me, this endless cycle of an insatiable thirst, this craving. There's never enough. And so I end up getting caught in this repetitive cycle over and over again. Right? And we do this with other, in other areas of our lives. We have these habits or these behaviors that we participate in that keeps the craving like a log in a fire. Right? It's fuel for the burning of craving. This is what Buddha calls nibbana or nirvana. Is not this imagined state that you achieve, but actually nibbana is a cooking term. And it means to remove from the fire. It's like when you take a pot off of a burning stove. And this, this is the cooling down of reactivity. And one of the best ways to cool down our craving, which I don't know if you've noticed, craving is not actually a pleasant state. It's, a, it's an insatiable thirst. It's a longing for something needing something that we don't have in this moment. When my mind says, I need to be watching Game of Thrones right now with my bowl of ice cream. Why did I come out here? I'm bored. <laughs> what you're observing in your mind is not boredom. You're actually observing craving. Boredom's not a real thing. Boredom is wanting something. You want something. And until you get that thing, I'm not satisfied if I'm caught in the craving. So this removing the fire... Removing the, the pot, the kettle from the boiling stove. One of the ways we do that is by cleaning up our, the, the things we participate in. What are the things that, whatever we practice, we get better at? What are we practicing? Right? Because those, those things, those activities, those behaviors affect our mind. So the second I won't talk a whole lot about because it's just the other side of the coin of craving. They, they live on the same coin is aversion, which is not wanting. Resisting, pushing away experience. This is the automatic impulse or habit of the mind to dismiss or to avoid, to resist, to become irritable, angry, resentful in the face of unwanted experiences. Pain, physical pain, but also failure, disrespect, criticism, and so one of the ways we work with this is by practicing learning how to sit with discomfort. Right? The Buddhist path is called the middle path. So this isn't about martyrdom. It's not about sitting with pain beyond our, a place that's safe or healthy for us. But we actually, the mind, when it feels pain, is going to tell you automatically it's not safe, it's not healthy. The pain in my leg, my leg is going to fall off. That's what my mind tells me. But if you actually sit and you bring your awareness to the sensation, you'll see, actually, I think I can be with it. 
I've sat with a lot of people that have meditated for, you know, hour sits, two hour sits. Zen, they do these strong determination practices. They may sit for three or four hours, some even longer. I have not encountered anyone yet that has had their leg fall off. So we can actually start to see that the mind's automatic resistance to pain is just that. It's the, it's the mind's defense, saying, not good, not safe, move away. The automatic inclination of the nervous system when met with discomfort, not even physical, but discomfort in life, is to resist it. But isn't it so paradoxical that so much of our transformation actually comes from leaning into our pain? from being honest about the ways that we experience pain, by learning to be vulnerable with our pain, by turning towards it, by sitting with it, learning to sit with our anxiety. What is one of the ways that they, I won't say cure, but help people recover from social anxiety? Through cognitive behavioral therapy, exposure therapy. One of the only ways to help people with their anxiety is to expose them to the things they're anxious about. To sit with that discomfort. And to learn through practice that the anxiety is this very intense welling up of feeling that comes up, but that you are not your anxiety. You are with your anxiety. You learn to be with your anxiety. I've done this with public speaking. I still hate public speaking. Every time I come out here, nervous, anxious, every time. Hasn't gone away. My relationship to my anxiety has had to, because <laughs> of the nature of what I do, get better. I've had to just learn to be with it. And so we learn to sit with and to develop some uh, distress tolerance a little bit, to be able to relax the body around the discomfort. I especially like this, not just with physical pain, because we want to be really careful how much we sit with physical pain, use some of the remedies, the medicines, the things to help alleviate it if you have chronic pain, but also sit with it. Because part of the problem with chronic pain is the two mental stories that come up around it. It's always going to be this way. I've always been this way. It's always going to be this way. Hopelessness, despair. Do those help my pain? No. I'm someone that has uh, chronic pain well up from time to time, and it has been recently. Those agonizing mind states, if I can see them and just say, okay, thanks for sharing mind. Yes, it doesn't feel good in here, but I don't need your extra opinion about it. So physical pain, but also the emotional. This is the part I was going to talk about, is learning to sit with the distressing emotions. My anxiety is not going to kill me. My anger, I don't have to act it out. The anger really wants to. It's going to tell me the story in my mind, right, that... I'm right and they're wrong, they disrespected me, that I've got to tell them what I think. And I can practice this stepping back and saying, oh, Mara, I see you, Mara, thanks, anger. Do you really think we need to tell them exactly how we feel in this moment? Because that's the thing about anger, is anger has an urgency to it. Anger is what they call hot emotion. The hard thing about a hot emotion is it wants you to act. Nine times out of ten, if you don't act on it, once you cool down, you'll find a way more constructive way to deal with whatever it was that you were angry about. Because there's a secondary emotion that arises when we act on our anger, which is regret. 
And regret is also a very unpleasant emotion. <laughs> right? So we can learn how to be with the primary emotion, the, the anger, and to not enact the story. The third and fourth hindrance, lethargy and restlessness, I like to talk about together because, again, they're two sides of one coin. Craving and aversion are our neurobiological impulses, wanting comfort, wanting to avoid discomfort. Not our fault, but our responsibility. Restlessness and lethargy are our... It's kind of a spectrum of mental energy. So lethargy is this, the Buddha refers to it as, well, the way that we've translated is these two very archaic words that I kind of like, sloth and torpor. Sloth is a lack of driving power or a reluctance to work to make an effort. So this is a great uh, territory of depression. I'm someone that struggled a lot with depression in my life, and I notice sloth is a big part of it. Is that reluctance to work to make an effort? It's the uh, the part, the the mind, the dull mind that wants to hit the snooze button in the morning. Again, not our fault. Is you want to sleep longer, right? There's that reluctance. We don't want to get up and go. There's that kind of like uh, Ajahn Sachito, one of my teachers, calls it that leaning on experience, right? It's just kind of like. When you're at work and you lean against the table, <laughs> you don't want to don't get, you know, you want to rest. And so again, resting is different than sloth. Sloth is this kind of uh, getting stuck in that habit. It's a sunken feeling of lethargy. It's the hard to get up and go kind of energy. Torpor is the sluggishness of mental factors. So it's a... a uh, we don't have much access to our attention, right? If you ever have like a dull mind, you know, it's hard to stay checked in. We check out a lot. The mental faculties are not as sharp or clear. So there are many reasons why we want to learn to work with lethargy is because, first of all, it's very frequent, especially in a meditation practice. When we start to practice finding an anchor, like I talked about tonight, and, and focusing our attention on the breath, one of the things that we learn to do is we learn to, through practice, bring the attention back when it wanders off. It wanders off, you bring the attention back, and then you learn to actually be able to sustain your attention for a little bit longer with the breath. So you breathe in, you feel the breath, breathe out, feel the breath, breathe in, feel the breath, breathe out, feel the breath. And what will inevitably happen is your mental energy will start to calm. They call this a samatha meditation, which is a mental calming. In Tibetan Buddhism, they call it calm abiding. And the mind, when it's mentally calm, as it starts to, the sloth and torpor show up, it starts to get sluggish and say, oh, this is kind of nice. Right? It starts to lean on that pleasant feeling. And then it starts to, we start to lose attention, our mental faculty. You start to check out a lot. So one of the best things to do, this is very subtle, but if you've been practicing for a while, or even new, you can start to work with it. When you notice your mind sleepy, it starts to kind of lean a little bit and feel that pleasant feeling. Just try to, when you notice the subtle checking out, see if you can check back in. Right? It's almost just like waking up out of the sleepiness and finding the breath 
and connecting with it. You need to use more of an active awareness in those moments. Working with lethargy is sometimes a matter of our consumption of things, caffeine, our food. You know, the Buddha is not telling our, uh, us to have rules about our consumption, right? Because we can create a lot of delusion and, you know, around, I'm just thinking about this kind of like health movement in the West. Healthy seems to be restricting food and it seems to be being in a certain body and it seems to be working out a certain way. A lot of delusion in that, but rather as a reflection, what is consumption? What is wise consumption? What does this body need for its fuel? <laughs> you know, this body may need some carbohydrates, right? It may need some good heavy foods, you know? This body may need a little bit of, you know, light tea or some caffeine. Actually, you see this at monasteries. They have tea and caffeine available to sometimes help the lethargy in the mind. Right? But then we can get caught in this addictive cycle of not really paying attention to our consumption. And then our energy level spikes and crashes, spikes and crashes. We can work with um, lethargy and meditation as well by having more active awareness and working on our posture. That's another thing. Sitting upright. If you're sitting in a chair, you can move to the front of the chair. That's one of my favorite ways to work with sleepiness during a meditation session. I try and I encourage you, try if you're going to meditate for like 30 minutes or 20 minutes at home, try to make it through the whole meditation practice. And if lethargy is there, if sleepiness is there, try to work with it. Right, so don't submit, don't just lay down and take a nap. <laughs> Because there's a lot of benefit to being able to actually, through mindfulness, experience lethargy as a mind state and work with it. You can keep yourself engaged when the mind wants to check out. And that's very helpful. Because part of our reason for checking out is it's, it can be a defense strategy of the mind. Right? We can get tired when we come up against unpleasant emotions or difficult situations. So, it helps us to be able to stay engaged. Restlessness is the other side of this coin. I won't go too much into it. But restlessness is mental agitation. It can even be overexcitement or distractibility of the mind. So restlessness isn't always unpleasant. It can be kind of have a tinge of craving in it, like a excitability or obsessed with like something that's going on in your life, a preoccupation. Uh, in the Pali Sanskrit term for restlessness, the translation of it is quivering above, which is this kind of like frantic type of uh, energy. The nervous system is like an electrical circuit. So thinking about it in terms of energy is sometimes helpful and thinking about emotion sometimes in terms of energy is helpful. What is like, and I won't go as far to draw any conclusions about this, but if you think about like bipolar, what bipolar is is mania and depression. Mania is high energy, depression is low energy. Right, so our Western world has called this thing bipolar, <laughs> and it has certain characteristics, and those things are helpful. I'm thankful for science, but really a lot of ancient practices, qigong, tai chi, I've been working with the chi system, the energetic system of the body, the meridians of the body. There's energy. There's energy. You can feel it. 
Like I said tonight, when you notice the energy behind your eyes, even if you close your eyes right now, just take a breath and observe. Or you can tune into the energy. The mind maybe is just present, maybe calm. Maybe the mind is active. Maybe the mind is dull. You can feel it. So working with restlessness is like downshifting. Working with lethargy is like upshifting your energy. Ways to upshift your energy in meditation. If you're lethargic, adjust your posture. Open your eyes. Look at the floor. Stand up. Put your hands like this and focus your anchor on your fingertips. Uh, Use noting practices. Watch your consumption. Things that I've talked about before. Ways to downshift your energy. In meditation, you can also use different forms of meditation. Like if you're really restless, doing walking meditation may be helpful. I do this on retreat quite a bit. Walking meditation, especially if I feel restless. Um, using metta practice, which is switching to using some kind of kind and gentle phrases that help to try to focus your attention on uh, soothing your mind, breathing and calming the mind, may I be at ease, may I be at ease, breathing out, calming the body, softening the body, may you be at ease, may you be at ease. We're not trying to change the way we feel, but we're trying to affect and, and adjust over time through practice the way we feel. The last of the hindrances is what the Buddha referred to as the most powerful of all the hindrances, which is doubt. So doubt, there are two types of doubt. There's investigative doubt and skeptical doubt. The Buddha says investigative doubt is essential for our practice. Investigative doubt is the type of doubt that is constructive. It is a questionating, or, or sorry, a questionating. I'll make that word up. <laughs> it's questioning and investigating in one. A questionating. <laughs> questioning and investigating. It's a questioning and investigating quality of mind that assists in dropping our fixed views about things. It's the, it's the questioning that asks, what is this? What is this? Right? They do that in Zen practice a lot. They ask questions. And it's in, in Zen, they actually call this the great doubt. Because in Western psychology, we talk about the confirmation bias, the tendency we have to confirm what the mind already believes. Very fucking dangerous. Very dangerous. And we do it all the time without even noticing it. It's automatic. It's a part of our procedural memory system, which means that you can see someone, and based upon the way that they look, your mind discriminates. Not your fault, but your responsibility. <laughs> Investigative doubt is the type of doubt that says, oh, shit, look at that. I feel defensive around this person. That's interesting. What is that? What is that about? Not, not judging that, but what is that? Doubting the mind's perceptual biases. Right, that's investigative doubt. This hindrance that we're talking about here is skeptical doubt. And skeptical doubt is a deluded or confused state of mind that's overcome with perplexity and indecision. You ever, ever find yourself in a mind state where you're overcome by indecision, confusion? Here's the first thing that I like to say about doubt. One of the things is doubt often arises because of our inability to be with the unknown. 
The mind does not like not knowing. Not our fault. The mind really wants to know. It wants to know who you are, what you think about me, what's going to happen tomorrow, how much money is going to be in my bank you know, next week. The mind really likes to know. And it's effort to try to know. What happens is we live in a world that we can't know everything. We live in an insecure world, a world that changes, a world that's constantly in flux. And so a big part of our practice is working with doubt. And this perplexity and indecision and not knowing. How can I be in this experience without knowing? That's, hard. That's a hard practice. One of the things that helps is faith. I, I notoriously refer to this as the F word. Because I particularly was not drawn to Buddhism because of their... Uh, emphasis on faith. The Buddha does not talk a lot about external sources of dogmas or beings, higher powers or things like that that are going to free us from suffering. He says each one of us really has to do that work ourselves. But he does talk about taking refuge quite a bit. The importance of taking refuge in our potential for awakening, our spiritual path and community. So having faith means that we have to learn how to overcome our doubt by inspiring one another, by actually reminding each other, because this is what the mind first forgets in doubt, is that you can actually do this. Even if you couldn't do this, thinking that you couldn't do this doesn't help you at all. By this, I mean awakening, healing, getting out of the depression, Wherever you feel stuck, you can get out of it. You will get out of it. I have complete faith in that. I wouldn't do what I do if I didn't believe that. We can awaken. I think we have that seed of awakening in us or we wouldn't be here. Why would we be meditating? Why would we drive all the way out here tonight if we didn't think that there was something valuable about this? But the problem is, is in the doubting mind, we lose connection with that. So we need other people. The Buddha says suitable friendship and wise conversation, association with the wise. The other way that we doubt is not just ourselves, but we doubt the practice. So this, we end up perpetually wandering around in a lot of different forms of spiritual practice, thinking that there's a better one out there. Christianity's better. Buddhism's better. Hinduism's better. You know, there's, there's no, I believe there's no ultimate path. There are many paths. There are many ways. But it's important to some degree, this is my belief, that you commit to a path. Because if you start walking down one path and you're like, oh shit, no, I'm going to turn around and go on that other path. Then you're like, oh no, I'm going to go on the other path. We're wandering around. We're wandering around and we never get to enjoy the hike. You never get to actually experience, you know, when, what, what does your meditation practice look like two years from now? How has your mind changed? How has your relationship to your mind changed? So we need to kind of uh, practice, the Buddha calls this diligence and ardent, ardency, steadfast commitment. <clears throat> 